Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I'm news correspondent Zara King. I'm joined in studio by my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. Zara, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, yeah. I'm political correspondent Calvin Riley. I don't know what's so funny, but I don't know Zara. what's how funny. Good. This is actually, no, let's be honest, this is our third time trying to record this. And just yeah, well, listen, we're keeping this one. <laughs> okay. We have to get going. Okay. Have you had a good week? I've had a great week, yes. Thank you very much for asking. How about yourself? Good, yeah, busy. But good. Yeah. World okay. Cup lady. You? Yeah, grand. Yeah, like there's a bit of news around. I wouldn't say it's been the busiest of news weeks, would you? No. Well, like, yeah, it's all like continuing threads, there. but nothing yeah. which is sort of new, new. Mm. Yeah, it's been kind of, it's a quiet, it's probably the season and everything. I suppose we're going to go back to um, last week when we were discussing housing and the grass being or not being greener. And the group chat ended up being mentioned in the Dole Gavin. Yeah, which was, which was pretty nice. Uh, first time for everything. So chalk that one. How did that come experience. about? Um, because uh, on the same day that we published our podcast, uh, the audio version of the podcast last Thursday, uh, with the voice notes that a lot of our own listeners and viewers sent in about their tales of leaving the country and the better standards yeah. of living that they have, there was also on the same day a similar piece in the Irish Independent and the two of them in concert were raised at leaders' questions by the Social Democrats co-leader Catherine Murphy who was saying to Leo Varadkar who was in the doll on the day you know you're saying the grass isn't always greener but look at all these instances where they are and it forced a little bit not too much of a climb down from Leo Varadkar because he did say overall the statistics mm. still show mm. that things are going okay but he said he can't deny the lived experiences of people and that mm. although they may not be represented in every instance that there was some truth to these people being able to live high quality, better lives abroad. But it was uh, nice to get a shout out all the time. It, it has been interesting how much that comment, that one singular comment has resonated and has really continued to be a thread all the way through the last week. I mean, you mentioned that he sort of in some ways backed down. I think he's done a couple of times where he's almost sort of backed down or, or mm. tried to sort of reverse course on it because it was deeply embarrassing for the government. This grass is greener comment it is something which TDs have been getting mm. from their constituents. So I think he did acknowledge that like Ireland has unacceptably high rents. Mm. He said that um, it compares unfavourably to most EU cities, which is obviously different to saying that you know you won't get cheaper rents in New York. Yeah, um, yeah. but it has really stuck and struck a nerve, and it struck a nerve Zara with people who are at the um, the raise the roof rally uh, on Saturday in Dublin, which was you know, major housing demonstration. And it's, it's something that, yeah, it, it did stick in the craw for a lot of people. And what was the atmosphere like at that, Richard? It's quite angry, I think. Not angry in the sense of it being like a hostile sort of thing, mm. but it was anger in terms of the situation that people feel that they, like, people are angry that they have to be on the streets protesting about housing. And that obviously comes under various different headings. So you had like the public sector unions, so like the, the teachers unions there, and you had the nursing unions there. Mm. Um, they're all talking about, you know, how their staff members... Um, can't afford housing, that nurses and teachers can't afford housing. We'll have a little bit about, about that in a few mo- moments. Mm. But then there was, you know, homeless groups were there, political parties, you know, trade unions. It was a huge collection of different people. And again, it was just a huge anger with the situation regarding rent, the availability of houses, the affordability of houses. And then the situation, of course, where you have, you know, over 11,000 people now in emergency accommodation, which is a record and was only likely 
to continue to climb higher and higher. that was a number that came out after we the podcast came out last week it was a couple of days later those figures came out and we had only been talking about that saying mm-hmm. that you know obviously there's a lot of initiatives happening in terms of housing but they're just the numbers of houses being built versus the number of people becoming homeless it's just the, the gap is far too yeah, wide it sort of reminds you of that old line about how like the devil can quote scripture to suit his own purpose that like there's always some statistic somewhere that will make things look slightly if you'll pardon the pun, things to look a little bit greener uh, than they are, things mm. to look a little bit rosier. Um, because, yes, you can say overall the number of new houses that's going to be built this year is higher than it's going to have been for quite a few years. So obviously things are ramping up, the plan is gaining momentum. But then you look at other stats like the number of new, uh, what are called commencement notices, the number of like new developments or new units that are actually being started in the last few months. And it's been down every month for the last five months. Mm. Now, you can compare it with other winters. It always slows down a bit in winter anyway. But the idea that you would have a pretty significant sustained slowdown in the number of new sites that have the sod being turned is not a great look. So mm-hmm. the value for every time you think you are turning a corner, there is some other shadow that you're about to loom into. Yeah, I think that's, that is something which, you know, it really dampens the optimism or expectation that people have. People who are at the protest on Saturday had no real expectation that this is something which is going to be fixed even in the medium term. Here's a few of the voices anyway of people that we were talking to at the weekend's protest. Huge need for public housing in Ireland now because so many people are homeless, they're not on lists, the waiting lists are unreasonable, it's just not good enough. So I'm almost 40, living with my parents, self-employed, single, can't rent, can't afford to rent, can't get a mortgage and I'm not allowed to build because I'm from Dublin and local needs down the country means that I can't build anywhere myself. They have what, 166,000 vacant homes straight away you can like solve like refugees and the homeless just put them into houses it's easy to do so that's an interesting point that's come up in that uh, Vox Pop there Richard is that idea of the vacant homes again it's a conversation that happens time and time again you know using the stock that we have is there much work going on in that area though? There's always talk about vacant home taxes and, mm. and uh, you know trying to change the property tax and maybe having some sort of a side value tax but the, by the government's own admission there's so many different loopholes. I mean, there isn't even agreement on how many vacant houses there are because yes, in the census, yeah. there was a stat of about 166,000. But then if you, like on Post also have a pretty good database, <coughs> excuse me, of every home in the country mm. and they don't agree that there's nearly as much either and the Department of Finance and the Revenue <coughs> Commissioners have a slightly different understanding again. So, you know, when, when they all stand over their figures but you can't even agree how many different empty houses there are, it's very difficult then to start drawing up a plan because, you know, even if the CSO says there's 160,000 empty homes. If the Department of Finance only reckons that there's 10,000 for argument's sake, yeah. it's very difficult to start building a plan to house tens of thousands of people on the back of a number when you actually don't know for certain how many homes there are. Mm. It's pretty staggering as well, Zara, that you know people have been talking about vacant homes as a solution to this mm. for years and years and years and years and years. And the government in various forms, whether this government or the one previous to it, mm. was like, yeah, no, we're going to get a move on that. And yet... And yet it's still not... Here we are now. Yeah. Like even <clears throat> that same lady making the point there, she said, I'm 40, I'm single, I'm self-employed and I live at home with my parents. She's like, I can't get a mortgage. You know, all of these sort of lived realities are so normal now. You know what I mean? That's mm. just such a, like that is, I mean, I hate that term, the new normal. But like when it comes to housing and the situation we're in now as a country, that is new normal. Like it's not unusual for you to be living at home with your mm. family into your 40s. Like it's sort of this, um, you know, you're unable to launch your life because you don't have the access to the finance to do that. Uh, and one thing which I think is even more demoralising in a way is that I think a lot of people have just now internalised that. You know, we, we were talking mm. before we started recording today about how actually the turnout at the demonstration at the weekend was maybe a little lower than a lot of people might have expected given mm. how many public sector unions and political parties that there were behind it, that the turnout was maybe a little flat by, by their standards or their expectations. 
And maybe that's because people have now just grown to just demoralise and just accept that this is how it's always going to be. And that because there are no quick fixes to it, that a protest will only ever achieve so much, which is is in its own way a pretty damning indictment of where we are. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. I think people who are there, um, yeah, there was. There was among some, some people who were chatting to some of the organisers and some of the political parties, there was a disappointment there that they didn't feel that they didn't get the full turnout that they thought they would. Mm-hmm. But they did also view it as the start of something. And they, they, they believe that there will be further demonstrations building a number. And that is something, in fairness, that we did see with things like the water charges. That mm-hmm. didn't start off as mega 200,000 people on yeah, the street. Yeah, snowball over time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You need to build up and people need to see that there is an impact to the discussion around it. So they do believe that there will be action as a result of it, that feet on the street is the way of fixing this. But um, it'll be interesting to see if that is something we see more of, probably not for the remainder of this year, but into 2023. Yeah, I mean, I was just, it, just as we're having this conversation, it just occurred to me, you know, when we think of like housing and homelessness and demonstrations, like Apollo House coming up to Christmas, that was that it was up to Christmas, wasn't yeah, it at the sure time? Was, How yeah. long ago was that? That was, that was, was it 15, 16? 14 or 15, perhaps. Yeah, yeah I think Christmas it was like 15, 2014, 2016, yeah. I'm yeah. being told here. 2016. So like, you know, we're still having the same demonstrations. The issues remain the same. In fact, they're probably worsening over time. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of protests, um, yesterday I was chatting to uh, IPAV, um, which has been sort of the representative group for the agents who work with landlords uh, in letting out properties. And um, I suppose like it was off the back of the fact that the, the Residential Tenancies Board was before the Oireachtas Housing Committee and they had mm. figures about landlords leaving the market or mm. selling up is probably the most correct yeah. way of saying it, mm. leaving the market, I think annoys people sometimes. I found that out yesterday um, because it sort of feels almost desensitised to what actually is happening. But anyway, landlords leaving is a big problem and all the opposition parties notice this and say that that needs to be addressed. I think it's something like 43,000, if I'm not mistaken, landlords have sold up in the last five years, wow. more intend to do so next year and in future years as well. So I spoke to IPAV about this and I spoke to them about how they felt about the protests that happened on Saturday and about the general atmosphere around, um, you know, attitudes towards landlords. Uh, here's, what, um, here's what they had to say about that. On the landlord side, any of them, they get in very small rents for their properties and can't afford to pay the mortgages. They could well be protesting as well, but we don't hear that much from them. And they are being demonised in lots of cases. And landlords have been providing accommodation for these tenants for many, many years and still will and still are. So, like, you know, it's not all the landlord's fault. So we need to, I suppose, look at the situation from everybody's point of view and see what can be done to help the situation. So look, it's not all landlords' fault. And look, I would say as well, and we've spoken this before on the podcast, like there are some people who are accidental landlords who have found themselves in a situation where maybe they were in negative equity and they couldn't sell their house for whatever Mm. reason. Like, look, that's, you know, that's one thing that I suppose you have to have empathy for. But in other situations, there are landlords and, you know, come across it ourselves where, you know, there is, you know, profits being made and, and like people are in dire straits, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think there was a big reaction to that clip when we played it on the news last night because mm. the suggestion that landlords could potentially protest um, would be something that wouldn't have wide popular support. How would that work? I, I, don't, think, I, I don't think it was a serious suggestion. But okay. basically, basically <laughs> the point was that in this man's view from IPAV, landlords, a lot of landlords aren't getting enough money despite the fact that rents in Europe, as Leo Varadkar even said, mm. are bad in comparison to the rest of Europe. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, as we saw, said last week, the DAF.ie report showing a 14.1% increase, a record increase in advertised rents. So, yeah. I mean, it is, it's difficult for people to square that. It, people who are in a very bad situation in housing yeah. or are struggling to afford it mm. don't really, you know, it doesn't play well with them when they hear people saying, oh, we're not getting much for rents. And yet here's the thing, that, that uh, both government and opposition will concede to you that they don't think that landlords are treated through, by the tax system 
as well as they maybe could be. Mm. And that it's possible that you could declare rental income as a different kind of income and not have to pay the same rates of income tax. And that might be an incentive for people to stay in the system. But they tried to think all that through coming up to the budget and they couldn't find any way to yeah. try and reward landlords that couldn't be manipulated <clears> by others. So even they, even the government and opposition parties would recognise that actually maybe landlords have a tough time of it tax-wise but they can't figure out what to what to fix. Mm, I think we should come back to this again. Let's just stay with this for a couple of weeks. We've got a couple of weeks between now and Christmas. I think personal stories, though, really is yes. key. I think hearing from people last week was really impactful. Mm-hmm. So um, I think if you've got a story to tell us, let us know. You can send either a voice message or a written message to us across social media. I think voice messages probably... Voice messages have been like, I think quite it adds effective. a lot. I think, I think, I think it adds a lot. Add your well. voice to this conversation. We're going to cover this again over the next couple of weeks. So get in touch with all of us across social media channels. And thanks to those who did last week. So I came to the studio today from Garda headquarters where they were holding a press conference. They're talking a bit about an operation that they've had going for two days last week, basically targeting the purchasing of sex. So for those who don't know in Ireland, um, selling sex is not illegal, but buying sex is illegal. So it was a targeted operation. Um, They identified a number of people uh, who were... Uh, alleged to have been purchasing sex, so 46 people, and they spoke to 112 individuals um, who were offered advice and welfare. This is really, I suppose, targeting those who are being exploited human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So it's a major operation. It's part of, I suppose, a broader picture in terms of... um, you know, identifying the fact that uh, sexual exploitation is part of gender-based violence and these operations will continue into the month of December. We can just take a listen to um, one of the chief investigators on this case, a little bit about what it's all about. But within sex, uh, sexual exploitation, um, it's, it's back up to pre-pandemic levels, the, the, what's been advertised on uh, escort websites. Uh, we saw a dramatic drop at the beginning um, of March uh, 2020 with the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, for nat- natural reasons um, but we would have an estimate between 600 to 800 people advertising daily on the island of Ireland so um, they would advertise both north and south there's no recognition of a border there. They'd be generally between 18 to 30 years of age uh, predominantly female um, if they're not if they are victims of trafficking they're extremely vulnerable as well um, so they would have their identity controlled their finances controlled and that's one example of uh, why they would be victims um, there's an area case of debt bondage here as well that um, the traffickers would say to them that they have uh, spent so much money to get them here and they can't be free until that bond, that debt is paid back and that's one way of, of controlling them and coercively controlling these uh, victims in terms of i suppose like long term do you see like, do you see it being eradicated, obviously not eradicated or, or legalised? What route do you think Ireland will go in all of this into the future? Well, I think we're, we're, uh, we're working very closely with our uh, EU member states. So we, we work through Europol, there's 27 member states in that. We in Ireland are part of 21 action plans um, under the uh, Impact, uh, which is um, a European multi-agency platform against criminal threats. So we work closely with our European uh, agents there. We also receive... The Americans take this very seriously, so we've received training from the Homeland Security and from the FBI, um, who who also grade us um, in a, an annual tips report from the U.S. State Department. Um, it's very transnational; it's a global crime. Um, I think most countries—I'm not just saying Ireland, but most countries in Europe and around the world—are starting to realise that this is a huge problem. The money being made by traffickers and by OCGs is equivalent to what's been made in drug trafficking. It's in the billions. It's actually, it's terrible to think about it so callously, but actually it's a very 
good point, um, but also quite a heartbreaking one, that mm. idea that humans, if they are trafficked and if they're treated as an item from which you can draw money, that mm. they can, you know, be, they, they're much more lucrative or as lucrative to a criminal gang as the trafficking of drugs. Because how, like, how much do you hear about the trafficking of drugs and, you know, ongoing cases in, in special criminal courts about, you know, the, the inference of the drug trade in Ireland and what it means to, to how it damages communities. Mm. And you don't hear or think as much about the damage, about the trafficking of humans, where the, someone's someone's lives are being ruined on an ongoing, repetitive basis yeah. for the same criminal ends. But it's also, Richard, isn't it? Like, it's the vulnerability of individuals who are brought to this country, like that's who he was touching on there, saying that, you know, they're told that they owe a certain debt to the organised crime group and until they, like, pay back that debt, they're stuck, you know, working for them, essentially. Yeah, I think that's 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 where the exploitation comes out of it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that, you're, that you have this twisted almost, you know, agreement out of it, you know, that there's like, well, you owe us because you're here now and all that sort of stuff. So, mm. yeah, it's, um, it is terrible. And it was, it's, 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 it's very interesting that it does seem to be quite rampant in Ireland, even in comparison to, to other countries. So that's something which is probably worth examining. Yeah, no, it is. It's like the investigation is interesting. I suppose there are groups like Sway, who is this, uh, the Sex Workers Alliance, who will say, you know, that there are people who are individuals who choose to do sex work and who want to be sex workers. Mm-hmm. And it's a proactive choice. Yeah, totally. Part. And yeah. like I have interviewed people, I think a few of us have in the past, where they've spoken about, you know, wanting it to be legalised and, and wanting to pay taxes and everything and have it be, you know, very much like a job. Um, you know, look, the Gardaí would say that they totally recognise that there are those individuals um, working within the system, but they they would probably argue that uh, the majority of people, so they were saying that on any given day you can have between kind of 600 and 1,000 um, people selling sex online in Ireland on any wow. given day. And, you know, look, they don't have an exact statistic for that, but they would argue that certainly a majority of those are individuals who have either been trafficked or are being exploited in some way, shape or form. But uh, look, I suppose that the groups like Sway will say, the operations like last week, I suppose how the operation works is that Gardaí um, will pose as clients to contact uh, the worker to identify basically where they're working. That's how the operation works. And then they'll go and they'll stake out the brothel's probably the wrong word, but the premises oh, where yeah. the work is being carried out. And, you know, effectively they are um, able to identify then individuals coming in and out and investigate it from that point on. Okay. You know, look, it's an interesting one. Actually, so for more on this, we're going to speak now to criminologist uh, Trina O'Connor. So Trina, look, first of all, do you think operations like this make a big difference in terms of targeting that sexual exploitation and in terms of helping the individuals at the centre of that? Well, yeah, anything anything that's targeted like this are, is always useful and always welcomed. However, it really is something that should be ongoing because I know they've said and they've released that they're going to be doing 16 days of operation throughout December. And while that's brilliant and it's welcomed, I really think we need more focus on this, particularly when you look at other countries and what they do. And Ireland really is an outlier. And we have been identified by international experts as a country that really isn't accepting the level of trafficking that we're seeing within Ireland, not just with transnational gangs, but also within Irish people themselves, trafficking people around the country. So, yes, it's welcome, of course. Of course, it does do good. It does. Um, it saves people. However, sometimes, depending on how the operation happens, it can cause more harm for the person, the victim, if the victim isn't supported. And I would really hope that risk assessments are done by On Garda Síochána whenever they're doing operations like this, so that they bring, for example, an interpreter with them, so that the victims of these types of crimes can be um, communicated with at the time. Because 
we have to acknowledge and accept that different cultures have different, I suppose, cultural norms when it comes around sexual uh, uh, exploitation, for example, and, and sex work. And they may have a bad experience um, with law enforcement in their own country. So they may not have trust in our police force who, and I have to be fair to them, it has to be said, are very compassionate when they're dealing with victims of these types of crime. But the cultural differences could cause problems for the victims, particularly through transnational trafficking. So yes, to answer your question, yes, of course it's positive and it's welcome, but it needs to be something that's ongoing, not just for 16 days in December. Trina, why do you think Ireland is um, an outlier? Why are we particularly bad in, in terms of you know being a destination or a place through where people are trafficked? What 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 is the situation in Ireland that leads to that sort of you know that level of of that volume of traffic really? Yeah, so I suppose one of the reasons is, Richard, is that we don't have dedicated units within on Garda Khan. So say in the UK, for example, they have dedicated uh, CCE and CSE, which are child criminal exploitation and child sexual exploitation. And then they also have adult um, sexual exploitation units. And within these units, particularly with children, I suppose, is where we really need that kind of work happening on the ground, like youth projects. You've probably heard of the Rotterdam gang, the, the, the grooming that happened there. That was exposed by a youth project called Risky Business, I'm almost sure it was called. And they worked with young people between the age of about 11 to 18. And they found out and they identified where there was problems. Now, let's remember there was a big report done about that thereafter because of the way the law enforcement in the UK handled it. It was going on from the 80s until right up until into the 2010s and 20-teens. And one of the reasons that it wasn't investigated, it was found in a report that was released in 2017, was the police force were afraid that they would be seen as racist because they were profiling certain um, different people from the BAM community. That's black, Asian, minor, um, um, ethnic minorities. So that, that, I suppose, is something that we need to learn from in the Irish police force, that we don't fall into that trap, that we're afraid that we don't want to target a certain culture or nationality, including our own, including Irish people, so that we make sure that we investigate properly without fear that we're profiling people. We have to learn from the mistakes of other countries. So in this country, because we don't have dedicated units, Richard, I suspect that's why a lot has fallen to the side. And just another thing about this trafficking, whenever you're looking at trafficking, a lot of the concentration that Angada Khan put into it is about sex work, when actually there's a lot of grooming goes on for other types of criminality as well. And we know there's a bill, um, there's a general scheme for a bill, the criminal justice, the exploitation of children in the Commission of Offences Bill that was brought out in 2020 and hasn't been commissioned into law yet. And that's about putting the onus on the adult who coerces that young young person to create a, uh, to commit a criminal act, and that's uh, it's something that really should be here. Uh, other countries have it, and that's another reason why people can get away with trafficking in this way. Mm, Trina, thank you so much. Really appreciate those insights, and thanks for joining the group chat this week. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So Gavin, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, bankers wanting to be paid more money. Why should they be paid more money? We're going to need you to demystify <laughs> this entire conversation. Yeah. Like, so banking is a competitive market in terms of talent. Is that the premise that, of this? That's the, the basic okay. gist of it. And, like, and it's worth um, kind of knowing the context where this has come from because it, it hasn't been, you might like have followed some headlines and thought it was the case that bankers have been like ringing up the government and be like, here, let us earn more money. Mm. And like, it hasn't been, I mean, they, like they've been asking for it, but that, that that's not the circumstance under which it came up. So this is the result of a, a review by an independent panel that was put together by the government a year ago. And um, that was when uh, KBC Bank and Ulster Bank both announced that they were going to be leaving the Irish yeah. market. And that mm. was going to leave only three banks left on the Irish high street. Whereas before the financial crash, there was between 10 and 15 different banks. So there was concerns around what that means for competition. Um, what would it mean if, for example, there was only one bank left in a rural town and then they decided to pull out? Would there be anywhere you could get cash? What does it mean for the general makeup of Irish financial services mm. at all? And this was a wide ranging review that was to consider all of that. And they did happen to consider by the by that um, bankers should be allowed now to earn bonuses of up to €20,000, which they are currently not allowed to do under any circumstances because of the crash time arrangements. And also when it comes to Bank of Ireland, which is the one of the three banks which is no longer owned by the state at all because mm -hmm. the state's investment has been sold off since, so we don't own any anymore, um, they will be lifting their pay cap of half a million euro. Now, that already didn't apply to the chief executive of Bank of Ireland, uh, specifically because... Bank of Ireland five years ago was finding it very difficult to find a new CEO because why would you work for Bank of Ireland for half a million quid if you could work for somebody else in the IFSC or in the London? The outgoing one now also made the point about pay being a thing, didn't she? Yes, that's Francesca, Francesca Madonna who yeah. just stepped down. So she was the one who was recruited five years ago and the yeah. government waived the limit then uh, so that her total package, I think, was worth something in the region of 900,000. And she has she has said that pay for, for bankers prospectively being recruited in Ireland is a bit of an issue because why would you work for one of the three pillar banks? What's the, I don't know if you have the, not expecting you to have the stat to hand, but is that actually, does that hold or carry any water at all? Like, is that in comparison to like London City or New York or something? Or is that in comparison to other European countries? The, the tricky thing is to, is to know exactly what they're yeah. comparing it to. Is it to London and New York? Is it a Leo Riker case of like yeah, how much more you thinking. could earn in, in those other cities? Or are they comparing you to other European cities? Or are they comparing you to other institutions in the IFSC? Because if you work for one of the three pillar banks, chances are you're working cheek by jowl or next door to another institution that doesn't have the same ceiling on it. Mm. So why would you work for the likes of an AIB or a Bank of Ireland or a permanent TSB if there's another institution a mile down the road in the Docklands that, that can afford to pay you three times more for the same job. But if we're willing to be competitive when it comes to hiring bankers, then why would we not be competitive when it comes to hiring other important people like... 
nurses and doctors and teachers I, and you I, know. I, I have to say I am and I know some government TDs are as well staggered that this has been something which they've done like a press conference on at this time of year mm-hmm. at a time when we have all the like the problems in our health service and the mm-hmm. problems in housing and homelessness mm. very difficult thing to try and sell yeah. and I know Pascal Donoghue of course previously a guest on this program um, was out trying to put a face on it and trying to do a very rational explanation for it by God, it's a tough thing to try and get people around to swallow. And uh, the government knows it's a hard sell because uh, when I was at that press conference on Tuesday when they were unveiling all of this, the um, the leaflet that they handed around, the press release that they were handing around, printed out was uh, the government has today published the report of a banking forum. Yada yada yada. Not us, Gov. Really, sort of thing. And and, uh, oh, by the by, the government has noted the recommendations, and the government accepts those recommendations. Mm. And uh, Pascal Dunne, who gave like an opening speech of ten to fifteen minutes before he was like a bank ad in itself. Very terms and conditions may apply there. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, you're. Security may be required. They're regulated by the Central Bank for terms of business rules. Um, but then he did a like an opening speech at the press conference for ten or fifteen minutes, and didn't actually ever say out loud, "We are accepting these recommendations." It was entirely just the report says, or the panel says, mm. or the review finds that there was no like the government agrees and the government stands over this, and it's like so the government very much knew that it was on the defensive. Now the, the one thing that they can say to try and defend their case is that in the case of Bank of Ireland, but it's not public money. Yeah. So this is a mm-hmm. private body and why should the government be allowed to say what a private body can pay mm-hmm. its own employees? Fine, yeah. Um, but it, then it, that's not really the same sell for permanent TSB of which the state still owns a big amount and likewise AIB because those people, although they don't work for the state, mm-hmm. their jobs were sort of dependent on the support of the state in the last And was there years. much of a divide a cabinet on this or was everyone pretty much not in agreement? Oh, right. Not an absolute bit. Caleb Fitzpatrick in the throw at the 1213 News was that this is a thing which is often not an awful lot divisive and I was like, apparently not, not a cabinet. cabinet. No one complained. Did lead to one of the worst exchanges of leaders' questions that I've seen in ages. And we've talked about how chronic leaders' questions can be <laughs> yeah. on a general basis. Mm. But I think it was when uh, I think it was Mary Lou MacDonald was having a, a crack at the government and Sinn Féin obviously making making hay with this really yeah. because this is, mm. again, as I say, something, something that's politically yeah, toxic. Um, she was having a go at the Taoiseach on this and Michal Martin said the comment again about, you know, bailing out the banks directly and direct action or whatever you refer yeah, to. Sinn Féin has taken more direct action in its time, which was a... a Typically um, meandering remark <laughs> from from the Taoiseach, in which he was ultimately trying to draw an inference between Sinn Féin and uh, activities in Northern Bank, uh, which he, of course, is something that he said under parliamentary privilege that the rest of us can't elaborate any further on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was a, a pretty useless exchange, uh, which would only go to further underline the frustration that a lot of people out there, I'm sure, have about all of this. Uh, and like the, the point does absolutely remain: if you need to increase the amount that bank staff can earn uh, why wouldn't you do the same for like the entire healthcare sector like wh- why is it that you can't raise pay caps for mm. nurses or mm. GPs or consultants or surgeons to but, fill but all like, it's, it's not it's not even a very long time ago we were talking about the tracker mortgage scandal like mm. we talk about you know the impact of banking decisions in this country and I mean, it's 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 a remarkable timing for the stories you're coming out just before Christmas. Very happy Christmas mm-hmm. for banking very executives. Unfortunate timing in a lot of ways well, when you think about it. Like especially when we're hearing about yeah. the Capuchin Day Centre has never been more subscribed for Christmas hampers. Like, yeah. You know, you literally have working poor coming through the door, like people mm-hmm. who you know are asking, "Can I take home a dinner to my children for after school?" Like they're ta- getting takeaway dinners. Like I mean, it's just never been like. So and I, I know, like you can argue that we hear these stories every Christmas, and we do hear them, and a lot of the charities, you know, will come out and tell these stories. It's 
time of year. But like, it's still the truth. It's still the lived reality. Yeah, yeah. Just because you don't hear it all year round doesn't mean it isn't happening which, all year round. Which leads to the one other salient defence the government was able to put forward, which was that um, this affects around 20,000 people, but they are not all executives. Some mm. of them are the clerks behind the counter. And those are people who haven't been allowed to earn any kind of performance rate bonuses at all for the last 12 years. And if they are also struggling with the cost of living, then they, like any other private sector employee, should be allowed to go to their boss and say, can I have a bit more to make ends meet? So for them, it is good and overdue and maybe in those cases, you know, very important for their livelihoods. But for them to get it and for senior executives to be told you can hour and more than half a million a year is two very different Do you remember scenarios. even when Zara, when we were talking about, you know, AIB was making that decision, which of course then they reversed oh, yeah. on to pull out of many, many, many different towns and villages across the country. Around. You have that, tracker mortgage, mortgage scandal, mm-hmm. a lot of people still affected by that, very much mm-hmm. trapped in, 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 in the impact of that. No idea how they thought, like the government, it's a very, very tough comms job. Uh, f- yeah, comms, yeah. comms at it again. Hard sell. It's communications Hard issue. Sell. Um, speaking of communications, we've had some communication from our listeners. Terrible segue, I do apologise. Um, <laughs> right. um, okay, well, so we put up a mail bag or a mailbox, a question box. Mm. Why can't I say a question box? Uh, to ask people uh, if they had any questions. One of the big ones that's come up a good bit, Gav, is the cabinet reshuffle. Oh, what's yeah. going to happen? Fantasy cabinet. <laughs> Well, we're, we're, we're not, not doing a full cabinet. Cabinet. We actually cabinet. I'm going to be asking. We only read your question before we like press <laughs> yeah. record, so we haven't had time to do a fantasy cabinet. Just open so disclosure we, on that one. We won't be doing fantasy cabinet, no. but obviously people will be wondering. Actually, to, to explain to people actually why there's a reshuffle happening at all. Yeah. Um, what is a reshuffle? Well, we, yeah. we know that on December the 17th, Michal Martin will be standing down as Taoiseach and the doll is going to elect Leo Varadkar as his replacement, um, and that technically means that uh, all of the cabinet uh, resigns and then all of the cabinet has to get reappointed. But we know for certain that Micheál Martin, if he's going to continue on as Thánaiste, has to take some government department. Is it going to be foreign affairs, do you reckon? Well, it could be could be a few things. I mean, it could be enterprise. You could have a straight swap with Dave Radker and then he actually wouldn't need much of a reshuffle at all. They literally just... Because he wants to complete that. He's, he's held so many different ministerial positions so over had, time as he reminds his colleagues he's had at Cabinet. Education. I used to be that minister. He, I used to be that minister. He's had <laughs> he education. <laughs> he's had uh, foreign affairs. He has, So he has had foreign affairs. Yeah. We'll come back to that. Oh. Um, I think he's... he's Has he been in enterprise at one point He was. Well? He was. He was enterprise um, minister. Yeah. And of course, he was in health, uh, yes. which is something that he likes Smoking to remind man. people about. Education man. The creation of the HSE. All his doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there could be a sense of does he want to go back and, and do something new? So he might like to go to enterprise because things. Does have he changed want to come on the group? So Tisha, would you like to come on the group chat before you finish up? Put, put the invite out there. Yeah. Come in and tell us what you what job you'd like at cabinet. By all that means, come nice. and join us. We're, we're extending the invite now. Um, but the real question mark is right. So what what job does he want? Because depending on which job he wants. There's a chain of dominoes of other people then that need reassigning. Say, for example, he chooses to go to higher education, a department mm. that only exists because he was agitating for it for the last couple of years and he insisted that this new department be created. He cares about the field an awful lot. So if he chooses to take on that field, well, obviously Simon Harris is getting moved out and he might need to be found another home for. Uh, but equally, if Michal Martin is in the field of higher education, then Norma Foley probably can't stay in the junior education, if you like it, because you couldn't have both of them in the hands of Fianna Fáil. Which would mean the Norma Foley. Junior education is the main. It's the biggest education. Portfolio. And Fianna Fáil can't have both of them. Um, If he goes to foreign affairs, uh, as a lot of people speculate he might, because Mm -hmm. it might mean that there's a European job coming up in two years. So he gets to be Tornishta, but also gets to leave the domestic scene before the next election and maybe clear the way for a new Fianna Fáil leader in the meantime. Uh, But if he goes there, then Simon Coveney has to be found somewhere else. And and where would you put him? Would you put him in Enterprise or do you put him somewhere else and then have the whole conveyor belt? And then separate to all of that, 
there's the junior ministers. So Gav, I love that Gav is, is like, this, the, Gav thinks the, the real the thing is happening. <laughs> Gav, <laughs> yesterday on our podcast meeting. <laughs> I've rarely mind. seen Gavin so, when so, so yeah. exercised about something. When you see Gav doing Gav Strap yourselves in, folks. Strap this is where to get good. <laughs> we have about four minutes for Gavin <laughs> no, to tell you all the reasons why junior ministries are where the tea is <laughs> this year. I'm not going to go into too, too much into the weeds of it because the reshuffle itself is two and a half weeks away and we okay. actually don't know when the juniors are going to be reshuffled. The one thing to bear in mind, though, is that there was a very delicate art among the three coalitions parties as to the assignment of juniors relative to where the seniors are. So, for example, Eamon Ryan is in transport uh, as the leader of the Green Party. Fine Gael were adamant that they couldn't, Eamon Ryan basically could not be left unsupervised in transport for fear that he would basically decide not to build any more roads. That there were bicycles coming out of everywhere. Or, or, or that he would like abolish international air travel. So Hildegard Nocton was appointed like he wouldn't have done that as a junior us. minister what? responsible for roads and international aviation. So there is a Fine Gael minister there to sort of mark her, to mark Eamon Ryan. Hildegard Nocton is a Fine Gael junior minister, but there has to be a Fine Gael chief whip uh, when, when Michal Martin stands down because Jack Chambers can't keep the job for a different party. Mm-hmm. So if it's Hildegard Nocton and somebody else has to be moved in to keep Eamon Ryan company in transport, um, but if it's, Bren- if it's Hildegard Nocton, someone else has to be moved in. If it's Brendan Griffin, who's currently the Fine Gael whip, then someone else has to be demoted because he's not currently a junior minister at all. And separately, then there's do all the junior ministries stay as they currently are. Roger Gorman, we've, we've talked about before about how how mad and how wide ranging his job is. He's responsible for the childcare budget and now potentially for yeah. um, historical abuse investigations at the Spirit and Schools and Ukrainian housing and abolishing direct provision and the disability sector. Roger Gorman is really busy. Like he's got an enormous he is really brief. busy. And, and has Do you won- remember when they were when they were appointing this government and they were everybody was going like God Catherine Martin's portfolio is huge tourism culture people media, completely let that arts. slide that that Roderick O'Gorman's uh, yeah. department is actually Roderick O'Gorman's one. department though much more unwieldy by by like what like what has unfolded in the last couple of years yeah. has really yeah. like quite busy. even if you didn't you already have the Ukrainian housing probably. situation it would have been very busy anyway yeah. so then well, there's an argument to be made that well shouldn't you give him a couple of junior ministers to to spread the load but if you create new junior ministries there you have to abolish ones elsewhere and then still try and keep the balance of all three parties. So it's actually going to be a really, really complicated thing. And maybe actually it's the appointment of the juniors, which is more significant because that might be the blockage for Ukrainian housing uh, or international uh, pressure. Are you uh, are you excited about this reshuffle? Nope. Uh, okay. uh, <laughs> I feel like I've listened wow. to... Do you, ever, do you ever watch Homeland? Uh, and it was like the first season when, you know, Carrie, who is played by Claire Danes, and she has this like big board where she's trying to find out like who the terrorists are. <laughs> and she has like this like little lines to join the thing. I feel like I've listened to that. Right. Uh, <laughs> or is it more like it's always sunny in Philadelphia? Yes, I, I didn't know if people see that. I didn't know yes. which is more mainstream. Is it Homeland or it's always sunny? Yeah. But yeah. actually, no, I am. I, I think it'd be interesting. I think there's some very, very difficult jobs, as Gavin is saying, uh, for people to do in government. Uh I think there's always a lot of intrigue. A lot of it is, could be a little bit bubbly about who's going to win and who's going to lose. But at the end of the day, there are so many important things which are happening, whether it's in health or it's in refugee accommodation, mm-hmm. as Gav's saying. It does make a difference who you put in things and what mm-hmm. sort of, as, as you're saying on junior ministers, what sort of firepower and support you give those people. Yeah, it does matter. And I think ultimately it's, you know, how it affects people really is what it'll come down to. I mean, is there any, at this point, is there any indication that anyone new could be, you know, rising to to the higher levels or? <laughs> that's, a, that's the thing we, we totally don't know. Yeah. It seems on the Fine Gael side, they'll probably stay with the same personnel, but nobody yeah. is totally sure about me or Martin's choices of personnel. Mm. And maybe it might depend on which jobs he has to fill might influence the personnel that he chooses mm. to do it. Mm. And it, it, don't forget as well, there's also the complication of Helen McEntee and Justice currently being on maternity oh, yes, leave. yes, of course. Yeah. And, and how hard it would be to manage 
giving her a different job or potentially demoting her from cabinet altogether while she's on maternity, which is something you can do in politics, but not in any other field. So I'm sure they wouldn't want to do it this time around either. So there's there's an awful lot of moving parts to be nailed down before they do it on uh, Saturday fortnight. Okay, well, listen, we'll watch this Can't one closely. That, 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 your, that is going to be a great episode. <laughs> send us your fantasy <laughs> cabinet. We'll, we'll have a look at your suggestions. Any ministry you want to see on your portfolio, let us know and we'll, uh, we'll talk about it again next week. So much discussion this week about a four-day working week. Um, what exactly, this is a study, Richard. Sure is. Um, so it's an international study. The four-day working week, first thing to get about it is that, okay, your working day, working week, the average working week, five days, mm-hmm. 40 hours. That's what we'd understand, right? Mm-hmm. It would go down to four days, 32 hours. So you're not putting extra work into those four days. You're oh. also not suffering any reduction in pay. So you might say, Hang on a minute. Aren't employers losing out on a day's work? And how does that work? Well, this study, which has been done internationally and it has been looked into for many years, and it's based on what actually happens in Iceland, which is, of course, a great harbinger of nice things. Yeah, um, they can have nice things. Seems to me, seems to be me based on this report of how it affects both businesses and employers. Quite a positive thing. And it's got a lot of people, it's got unions excited about how this might work because the companies that went through this in Ireland, 12 companies put, went through this trial in Ireland. This is a global thing. Um, that includes like a manufacturing company, there's a financial services company, a recruiter. Okay, so it's across different sectors. Exactly. This isn't all just like... Professional services. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. Yeah, um, All 12 of them say they want to keep the four-day working week. Mm-hmm. That's the companies, not just the employees. And 100% of all of the employees said, yes, we will yes. like to keep this. I'd like you to um, again, please. The companies want to keep it because productivity seems to have gone up. Wow. The people, wow. When, they're giving, when you give them four days to do five days work, mm. what well, would have been five days work, there's actually an increase in productivity. So basically, they, like, they don't go on the DOS as much when they're working or that they, they just knuckle down and get the work done quicker? It seems to be. I asked the, 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 the author of this study, the Irish leg of it, um, why that would be, why people are getting more out of it, why companies are getting more out of four days from their employees than five days. And burnout seems to be the big thing. Mm. People are incredibly burnt out. That's, that's that's something which people noticed before the pandemic and has continued after that. Um, I think there's a, there's a reciprocal nature to things. If employees are told, right, you're going to work for four days and there's no reduction in pay, it's like, well, that's great. I'm actually going to go hell for leather on this. Mm. Um, people have more energy because actually they looked at the, the, the impact of this and we'll actually hear from the, from, the, from the author of the study now. But even in terms of sleep patterns for people, all of that improved. The employees in Ireland 100% wanted to continue on. Of, of the 500 employees of these two latest trials, 98% wanted to continue. Um, so yeah, very positive from that perspective. We measured all kinds of things. Um, so we saw an increase in the amount of time people spent exercising. We saw a gain in positive affect, so kind of good mood, um, a downturn in stress, burnout. Uh, people were sleeping more, actually. So we had um, a portion of the, about one third were what we consider sleep deprived, getting seven less than seven hours a night. That fell down to 9%. So all of these things have cognitive and health implications. Less than seven hours a night. I feel like I never get seven hours sleep a night. Do you? I have children. Deprived, so You've I have no children. Yeah. <laughs> Do you? You're kind of good at going to bed early. No, then. I'm pretty bad at the moment, actually. Yeah. Ever since I came back from the States, terrible. Oh, but yeah. um, so actually, so if, okay. So if you haven't, four day work a week, you have three days off. What people who are in the study did is basically had two days for complete leisure. That would be your Saturday and Sunday, Mm -hmm. effectively. The third day is effectively become a life admin day where people doing things they need to do, any admin or any chores they might need to do. They basically fill it up with that. They feel more rested. They have more time with the kids if they have kids. Mm. Huge benefits to this. Mm. And I mean, there's going to be obviously question marks as to what 
industries this won't work in. Some people talk about schools, although in France, of course, they have Wednesdays off for a lot of them. So that's mm. potentially one model. Nobody's saying let's for we're, we're snapping to a four day work week for everyone. Mm. Yeah. Not happening. But it's definitely something which is increasingly going to be considered by Irish businesses, I think. And yeah. it's something which just based on um, our listeners, feedback they were giving me over the course of today, a lot of people are interested in. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. I mean, if only you could do it in our line of work. We just decide, ah, you know what, a three-day weekend, Grant, just we don't need that many. Just close the news. There's no news Grant, today. Space it down. <laughs> like, in a way, though, it's actually not surprising when, when you think about it because you're going back a bit, but like there was a time when the average working week was six days. Yeah. Like, where, yeah. where people, like when they were working like mechanical or industrial jobs, would be working like all day Monday through to Saturday. They only had one day off. So like when you phase it down to a five-day week and the economy's got bigger, maybe it just makes more sense. Maybe actually if you just, according to everyone's working week down to like three days, two days, could you, could you squeeze I feel like slightly nice. more output out of them? Okay, before we go, uh, Spotify Wrapped just dropped for all of us before we started recording. Now, I feel like, does your Spotify Wrapped say a lot about you, I wonder? Well, I actually want to say, first of all, because the, the way I, I, I noticed that it um, that it was ready and it was pumped to everyone's phones in this amazing marketing thing which Spotify does every year, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. is that people kept on tagging us because we were in their top five most listened to podcasts. Were we? So, I didn't so know thank that. thank you to everyone That's who lovely. did that because it's very nice to be included. It's actually amazing. It's amazing to sort of see that because I've never seen that before. But anyway, what's in your top, what's your, what's your, What's your Spotify unwrap? Okay, so my top artist was Beyonce and I'm delighted about that. I feel like that is a fair reflection of my music taste. Uh, My top song for the year was actually, I think you introduced me either to this artist or this song, Kay Trinada, Intimidated. I played it 122 times, the most listens on the 8th of April. And then, so my top artists in five were Beyonce, Kay Trinada, Ariana Grande, Colby Kaye, who's an oldie but goldie, and Becky Hill. Oh, Becky Becky Hill. Hill. Lads. I actually didn't realise I listened to Becky Hill that much. But obviously, since we saw her at um, Electric Picnic, I've become a fan. How about you? Uh, mine is as, as expected. I actually have fewer minutes listened to than I have in most years because I listen to oh. a lot of audiobooks and podcasts and stuff like that. So, yeah. uh, artists Freddie Gibbs, Kano, Kendrick Lamar, Cassandra Jenkins, and Madlib. They're not ringing any bells for you. You know Kendrick uh, Lamar. Yeah, Kendrick you? Lamar. Yeah, yeah. Bells. Madlib is, yeah, <laughs> hip hop producer, basically, and MF2. Great lad. Uh, top songs, they're all pretty much the same. They're too cool for you people. What was it? What was your number one? What was your most played song? Uh, Hard Drive by Cassandra Jenkins. No, I, yeah, ah. if I'm going to read out the names of my songs. No, I left you. I deliberately you, you left you. Okay. I deliberately <laughs> left you until the end, Gavin. So, the, what I particularly enjoy about mine is the juxtaposition between the top genre and the artists, because my top <laughs> genre listened to this year is. Wrestling. Wrestling as a genre of music. It's basically just like WWE theme tunes. Uh, you know, particularly the NXT ones are particularly good this time. Very good. Um, and yet my top artists, uh, we'll start from, from uh, five. Uh, five is it Proletaire, who is a French DJ who remixes a lot of um, old timey, like 19th century stuff and puts dance beats over them. They're quite nice. Sensational. Uh, number four is Thumposaurus, which is entirely just strutting. Uh, which my youngest daughter particularly enjoys around the kitchen. Oh, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that was what a TikTok song. Three is WWE. Great. Again, the source of the, the wrestling uh, entrance music. Sensational. Two is The Wiggles and one is Peppa Pig. <laughs> wow. Who claims all five of the top songs. Uh, five, Jumping in Muddy Puddles. Four, Rainbow Rainbow. Three, Balloon Ride. <laughs> two, Bing Bong Champion. Olympics themed, World Cup themed, kind Good. of uh, topical. And one, Peppa's Lullaby. Uh, which gets played on loop a lot when you're trying to wind one or other of that my two daughters. How many minutes of music there? 43,616. Oh. I, I dare not wonder What how, does it say percentage-wise then? Or no, sorry. Uh, I, don't, I don't have it. Yeah, yeah. I've just screen-grabbed it now. Uh, but that's, uh, I actually would fret about how few of those minutes are actually me in the car driving, mm. listening to music and how much of it is one or other of the kids. See, they do the thing. It's like, here's your listening personality. 
Oh, that's Suspense. absolute garbage. I'm the early adopter. What does that mean? That you're probably new to... Well, there's a text from Booth to say my perfume is ready to be collected. <laughs> it's amazing the, the, the stranglehold Spotify has on this. This this does become something which people even mm. gamify. Like, Because I think it, 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 it records your streams up until October 31st. Okay. So you'll actually notice even on Twitter or on Instagram, people are like, here's your chance to... Oh, to get them all Get, get your streams yeah. in now if you don't want something embarrassing in your did top you, five. Did either of you do that that festival thing that they can do where it mocks up a festival? Well, yeah, how, yes. How do you do that, actually? So it's on in, InstaFest dot app and once again the uh, the headline Could app be dodged, by the Gavin way. Fest uh, are Peppa Pig Peppa Pig stories <laughs> different artists because one of them is music and one of them is just audiobooks and uh, headlining on the third night of the festival White Noise Baby Sleep so um, <laughs> I think I heard that album I, yeah. I think um, Metallica released that Oasis yeah. are also on that bill yeah. oh <laughs> wow Peppa in the one night uh, well, never say we're not a click. Again, though, thanks so much to everybody who yeah. have, have yes. us in their top five on Spotify rap. That is a real so thrill, nice. to be honest. That's yeah. so lovely. Thank you very much. We really appreciate you listening. Also, we want to say welcome to Ross, who is a new addition Indeed. to the group chat. Welcome, welcome, Ross. Uh, welcome, Ross. Thank you to Gareth and Maxine and all the team in the gallery who have been uh, very patient with a very giddy group chat today. <laughs> and uh, we will be back again next week for another episode. Just another reminder: if you do want to tell us your stories, particularly around housing, send us your voice notes or anything, uh, or anything, yeah. any of your stories. Uh, but send by voice note though to any of us. Uh, via like Twitter or Instagram and we would love to feature them next week. Thanks for listening and watching and we'll see you next week. Bye everybody.